This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Jay Gunkelman, and you're listening to NeuroNoodle Network Podcast. Thank you all for joining NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssens and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing for well over 50 years and are happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at Janssens.com, that's J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com, and Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com, DrSkip, H-R-I-N.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, it really helps get the word out. My name is Pete. And today we're going to chat with J.G. But before we get to J.G., we had a couple listener questions. I figured we'd address it now. Uh, This is from uh, listener Ben, Ben P. I would love to learn more about the methods of transcranial stimulation or alpha stim or Len Oaks systems, systems method that involves actually running current into your body? Transcranial direct current stimulation is different than Len Oaks's lens system. Okay. Uh, the, the transcranial DC stimulation is a really quite reliable method of altering the cortical excitability. Uh, if you put the plus electrode over an area, you actually can excite the cortex in the area by increasing electronegativity at the basal membrane. Um, and if you put the minus electrode on top, you inhibit the area's uh, function by increasing electropositivity at the basal membrane. Uh, and there's times that you only put one of, of those on the head and the other one goes on the shoulder. Sometimes you've got a spot in the brain you want to excite and another one you want to inhibit, and then both can go on the head. But that's not as common as, as one might think. It, it's, it's quite common that overactivation is the problem and you have to put the reference on the shoulder. Wow. These are very uh, milliamps, right? Yeah, uh, most people overdo the uh, intensity. Uh, If you start out at 0.5 milliamps, most people can't quite feel it. Uh, If you step it up to one, people can kind of feel it usually. Uh, If you step it up beyond that, uh, people feel a tingle or a a buzzy uh, electrical feeling. If you you feel that extent of it, you're actually having skin effects. You've got it way too intense. If you've got it to the point where they can almost sort of tell that there's something on, that's perfect. Um, If if they're getting a buzz or a tingle, you've got it too much. Right. And and you're trying to affect the chemical transfer between the cells at the ligand level? Uh, Actually, the, the... polarization within the basal membrane is is what you're altering now there's neurochemistry that goes along with that but your your direct uh, effect is on the electrical uh, polarization within the basal membrane and and that sets the level of activation for all of the neural networks that are in that area uh, so uh, um, exciting the brain in an area sometimes can inhibit a function uh, if you're exciting an inhibitory area like the frontal lobe uh, so ultimately, uh, you're, you're talking about brain function, but if you're looking at the behavioral function that's associated with it, you can activate inhibitory areas and actually get less of something. So, it, so it, it, if you understand what the function is at the location that you're stimulating, you have a pretty good idea of what the outcome of it is going to be. The, the effects are pretty reliable. Right. So I understand that the gentleman who had the question, he was asking, he's got some symptoms of OCD. So we don't want to tighten the frontal lobe. We want to loosen it, right? In fact, for OCD, you have a disturbance of the anterior cingulate. The cingulate's function is to give you cognitive and emotional flexibility. When it's disturbed, you can be locked onto something like OCD or ODD 
or locked off, like amotivation, lack of initiation, and ultimately akinetic mutism. Um, the, the cingulate can have a failure of beta, which is still a failure, or alpha, or theta. If it's an alpha pattern at the anterior cingulate, you're highly likely 85% probability of a positive response to an SSRI or SNRI. Now, look to the literature anywhere and find that kind of a percent effectiveness for that drug. You won't find it. That's the highest percent outcome uh, report. It's a, essentially a lock and key uh, biomarker. Uh, the, the research on that was Leslie Pritchip and Roy John out of NYU that did a cluster analysis of OCD. There's only one kind of OCD in the DSM. They asked the cluster analysis to find two. Uh, it found the alpha pattern, again, 85 plus percent positive response to SSRI, and the slow pattern, which is a theta pattern, but a sometimes slips into the delta band. It's a rhythmic slow wave. And uh, that has a 15% response to an SSRI or SNRI. And you get a 35% placebo response. So 15% is essentially a non-responding group. Um, and we found the beta spindle pattern as well. And unlike the theta pattern, which just doesn't respond, but they don't have a bad response. It's just a lack of responses. Waste of time and money to take the med but at least you don't end up having a bad outcome. If you have a beta spindle pattern and you give an SSRI or SNRI, they basically have a negative side effect of over arousal, uh, quite often a panic attack or a meltdown of some sort. I, I think we're on the same page, Pete, Lenox system. Sure, Len Oaks has a, a system that uses an extremely weak signal. Uh, so weak that um, uh, the, the FDA basically said it's so weak you can't really have an effect, so go ahead and sell it. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, you can't do anything bad with this because you can't do anything at all with it, so go ahead and sell it. The thing is, they're looking at it in the wrong way. If you're looking to have an effect on the brain and you're waiting to create an action potential with your stimulus, you're going to have to have a very strong stimulus, like a TMS pulse. That, that creates an action potential. I can make you wiggle your fingers, you know, and or wiggle your toes. Um, uh, but if, you, if you're dealing with a Len Oaks level system uh, strength uh, or pulse DMF, uh, uh, you know, there are other weak signals that, that were permitted by the FDA. Uh, it's a different approach. Let, let's say we create a bell, a gigantic bell, and it's got a big clangor. The clanger can whack the bell and it's like creating an action. It will ring the bell. And the other way is I can have a little tiny padded mallet. And if I whap the bell, it doesn't really make any sound. But if I tap the bell at the right frequency, the bell will eventually ring. And a very weak signal with proper timing can influence a network. And you can't necessarily expect it to generate an action potential, but you can potentiate function with it. And again, the, it, it has to be timed properly to end up activating a network. So the second part of Ben's question was, we, we addressed the OCD. Uh, he says, I'd really like to hear how neurofeedback helps people or case studies deal with and work through emotional-based problems. Can neuro help someone develop capacity for emotional connection, for example? Okay. Uh, emotional connectivity basically uh, has a, a few underlying networks within the brain. The mirror neuron system uh, is uh, uh, basically able to have, if you see something in the outside world that you relate to, you mimic or mirror it. And uh, if you're mirroring affect, you end up learning affect. So the mirror neuron system has to work for you to end up developing empathy and social connections. Now, the, the mirror neuron on the left develops language. Ma, 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 pa, 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 da, da, da. You know, you mimic your mom or your dad as they're making the sounds. And eventually you realize, oh, ma, ma, and pa, pa, da, da. Those are different people. So the mimicking or mirroring is a frontocentral loop. And if it's turned off, you see mu in the EEG. If that neural system is turned off, it has an idling rhythm like alpha uh, in the back from closing your eyes. So if you disconnect from the outside world, you see mu. In the autism population, 70% of them have mu. Uh, the normal population, 15% of them have mu. Um, 
but in the normal population, you also have things like elite athletes that have a disproportionately large amount of mu. They have to disconnect from the outside world to get into their internal state. But for developing emotion, it's not ma, 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 pa, pa, pa on the left side. It's facial expressions and body language. As an infant, your parent um, uh, uh, you, you, your parent smiles, you smile, the mimicking or mirroring happens, and you eventually comprehend emotion. That puts that information into the right posterior temporoparietal junction, like Wernicke area le learned language on the left, the equivalent on the right. Now, I joke that Wernicke had a sister and she studied emotion and we can stick the Wernicke name on the right hemisphere as well. It's just a joke. There isn't a sister, um, but I, I, I always joke about Wernicke's sister, you know. Um, so Wernicke's sister area over on the right side uh, is the spot that ends up perceiving facial expressions, body language, the emotional tone of speech. And um, that ends up allowing for social connections. For people that have PTSD, we see a gigantic change in that right temporoparietal junction. And depending upon the age at which the trauma occurred for PTSD, we could expect different frequency content as well. Uh, so uh, it's, it's something that's easily identifiable. Uh, when you see a giant alpha or a theta wave or a slow feature over there, you can predict that they've got social perceptual problems. So, um, yeah, the, the, the brain has foundational networks to lay down the ability to socially connect with people. Yeah, so it's interesting, the, you know, putting the, the, the gentleman's case together. So he's asking about OCD, but he's also talking about social disconnection. So there, there's more than one thing kind of happening, but it, but it does seem to kind of add up to, to something that looks like autism, right? So if he's got, uh, you know, over-controlled rigidity and, and, and poor social connection, you know, there's, you know, PTSD yeah. probably as you're talking or possibly, yeah. um, or, or maybe uh, autism. Uh, but what you, what you have is a unique person and what we have is the DSM, which is false categories. So, uh, you know, if you, if you take the DSM, uh, burn it and flush the ashes down the toilet. I think you've treated it appropriately. Um, How do you really it, feel, Jay? <laughs> it's it's oh. a, it's, a, it's a false standard to which we're held. You know, uh, oh, what's the EG pattern of this diagnostic category? Well, if the diagnostic category was real, I could give you a pattern, but it's not. So I can give you a few patterns. Um, uh, the you know, I, I've been harnessed with the DSM as the standard we're compared to for all these years. And finally, when they declared that it wasn't valid, you know, it, it was a reliable, highly reliable. You get the same diagnosis multiple times in a row with multiple different people doing the diagnostics. So it's a fabulous, reliable product, but it doesn't predict anything except your billing. So, you know, if, if you want it as an administrative tool, quit talking about clinical stuff with it, just bill your patient the way you want to bill your patient and then let the people that actually look at, you know, neurological and, and uh, psychological function actually deal with the patient. Uh, the, the DSM is, is a false standard. And, and when they declared it invalid, I, I thought it was a, a sea change. Now, uh, initially they said they were going to quit funding DSM research only, but the institutions pushed back really hard. You know, if, if you're funded for the last 25 years at a university for studying XYZ disorder, whatever it might be, uh, and then suddenly you had to do biological biomarkers and phenotypes and genotypes and stuff, and you're not oriented to that, um, your funding just disappeared. So there's a lot of institutional pushback uh, that people cling to the DSM still, um, invalid as it is. Um, it, it's a reliable thing for them to hang on to. And uh, th there's a lot of pushback, but ultimately biomarkers, genotype, phenotype material is, is where things are moving. And um, there's no main criteria. Yeah, I, I research, exactly. Uh, 2015, as soon as they said they wanted research domain criteria studies, we cranked out one on beta spindles in the EEG and not any DSM category, but just, you know, looking at all the people that had beta spindles, what, what was this associated with? The biggest correlation was insomnia. Uh, 
beta spindles at CZ is a wakefulness drive. And if you have a wakefulness drive, you're going to have trouble falling asleep and staying asleep. And there's a good counterbalance to that. The sleep spindle is something that counters the wakefulness drive. If you don't have a well-developed sleep spindle, you, uh, as you start to fall asleep, you get to stage two. You get a vertex sharp wave, which is the, the body's response to a stimulus. And then the sleep spindle keeps you stable, or you're going to wake up with it if you don't have a good sleep spindle. If you have beta spindles there, not a sleep spindle, um, you, you're going to pop back awake on your way to sleep so you don't fall asleep well. And then during your sleep, you're going to pop up to stage two at some point and you're going to pop back awake. SMR, the sensory motor rhythm that Barry Sturman discovered all those years ago in cats, is exactly the same signal, signal generator, frequencies, everything is a sleep spindle. Same thing, different state. SMR when you're awake, sleep spindle when you're asleep. Now, when you're asleep, the, the projection pathway has a little bit more option available to it. You can see it a little further front, but when you're awake, it's pretty well restricted to the sensory motor strip, which is uh, obviously why, why Barry ended up calling it the sensory motor rhythm. Um, and uh, uh, the, there's a lot of confusion between mu and SMR in some people's mind, but uh, they're, they're totally different. You know, your sleep spindle is well-developed when you're a year old. It doesn't need to mature up to speed like alpha does. And mu is related to alpha. It has to mature up to speed. Not at all the same rhythm, not at all the same locations or generators. And uh, again, there, there's a lot of confusion between those two, and there really shouldn't be. Well, Ben, we answered your questions. And oh, man, JG, Jay Gunkelman just comes in and knocks them out of the park. One, two, three, bam. <laughs> So JG or Jay Gunkelman, Mary Tracy from Stens asked to have you on the show. What is your history with Mary and Stens? Uh, just curious uh, for all the Stens people out there. Well, I've known Steve Stern since 1972 when he was the sales uh, rep for uh, Autogen Equipment. Uh, I met him at the first uh, Biofeedback Research Society that I went to in Monterey. Um, and since then, he's obviously a, a good person in sales and management, and eventually he's, he's got his own company, and he does a very nice job uh, promoting uh, a, a specific equipment, um, and he's got educational material that they present. They do a nice job with certification courses. Um, Mary was more recently brought on as an instructor for him. Now, she goes back to the 60s and early 70s as a tech as well. Uh, she worked in the Navy. Uh, she, she worked in a sleep lab. Um, I had a three-bed sleep lab. So we had all this sleep lab crap together as, you know, commonality. Mm -hmm. And you know, she, had, uh, she had heard that I knew something about EEG, and uh, she had some difficult cases she wanted to have looked at. And after three one-hour sessions reviewing raw EEG waveforms together uh, and chatting a little bit about the old days, uh, she asked if she could do a documentary about me. And and I, I quite honestly thought it was like, you know, she'd come in with a little handheld and ask two or three yeah. questions and that'd be it. Um, but uh, uh, she shot 36 hours of video across two years. They edited it down to a two-hour documentary. And I'm uh, luckily they didn't edit it into me being the class clown any more than I am, you know? Um, but it, uh, it, it, it's apparently going over pretty well. I, I have trouble watching it myself. What's the name of that Jack? Well, uh, signal in the noise is the formal name, but everybody calls it the gunkelmentary. <laughs> uh, uh, and the, I think the common name has probably eclipsed the formal name, but, um, uh, I think they're trying to market it as an educational thing. And there can be a lot of people that don't have any idea you know, what I've done or who I am or anything. And um, at that point, the signal and the noise is an appropriate name for it. Um, you know, I, uh, um, I, I had looked at over 500,000 EEGs by the early 1990s. And at that point, I, uh, um, I started to actually think I saw something you know, when you're when you think you see something, your data, your data is speaking to you. Um, 
you've got two options. Well, first of all, you've got to publish what, what you think you see. Now, you're either totally crazy and you're seeing something in the data, or you might have actually seen something in the data that's meaningful. So you have to actually put it out there as a straw dog for people to rip up or, or, or validate. And it was a retrospective analysis. I mean, I'm looking in the rearview mirror at 500,000 studies I'd seen, and I said, oh, there's some common patterns. And I'm trying to come up with a list of these common patterns that predict a lot of variability, a minimum number of patterns that predict the maximum amount of variability. So I'm not trying to make more categories. I'm just trying to find the common patterns. I came up with 11 that I had seen so reliably that I thought they had to be you know, kind of foundational uh, EEG patterns. Well, at looking at the list, I noticed that two of them had known genetic correlates, which meant they were phenotypes, endophenotypes. And I essentially wrote a paper along with my uh, uh, business partner and uh, 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 and his uh, girlfriend, who uh, was a nurse who also helped out. And um, uh, Joy Lunt is still uh, alive. Jack uh, passed a few years ago. Um, but uh, uh, um, I realized these are phenotypes. The others are, other nine are candidate phenotypes. And since then, uh, they, they've been validated as well as having genetic correlates. Johnson & Johnson spent $4 million to do 100 people full genome workup quite a while ago now, prices have come down. Um, uh, their, their statistician thought it was a waste of time and money because how can EEG patterns predict genetics? Well, uh, <laughs> they were shocked uh, uh, that they actually found meaningful uh, correlates between these EEG patterns and genetics. Now, they didn't release all their information uh, like many uh, drug companies, they hold their uh, research outcomes uh, quite tightly uh, and don't don't basically release uh, that information. So they've um, uh, they've identified the other nine uh, with with detail. Uh, uh, Martine Arns uh, uh, has found uh, um, public domain uh, um, uh, correlates to some of the patterns as well. Um, uh, I used to travel when I still could. I can't anymore. Uh, ever since the brain uh, surgical patch failed, I, I leak cerebrospinal fluid out my nose. I can't fly. I can't, you know, it's, and I'm, I'm not well enough to have surgical intervention. So I just leak, um, but I can't fly anymore. But when I used to fly to, I, I would go over to, to Europe and Martina had set up a lecture and I, you know, it's Amsterdam, fly in, hang out for a few days. It was a lot of fun. Um, and then take the train to Nijmegen and, and do a, a, a lecture. Well, when I arrive in Nijmegen, he's got a stack of EEGs, 49 ADD, 49 match controls. I have to phenotype the ADD kids and the controls and have to predict based on the phenotypes, which kid is going to respond to stimulants, their ADD, ADHD kids. Well, it predicted accurately. They already knew who responded. It, I predicted accurately with a phenotype model who responded to stimulants. Uh, they then offered $5,000 to anybody who did a better job. Now, they didn't offer it to me, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, and that's okay. Basically, only one group in the world tried. Uh, the vigilance modeling people in Europe uh, uh, tried, and they didn't beat ours. But uh, Martin had three minutes of EEG. <laughs> the phenotype model requires 10 minutes of EEG uh, for them to properly evaluate it. So uh, me saying that we beat them is foolish because we tied one arm behind their back and blindfolded them. And then I can beat them. You know, I mean, they didn't have an honest 10 minute shot at, at an assessment. So, um, you know, with the proper data set, they may be equivalent or better. Who knows? Um, but the, uh, we, we did effectively predict with the um, uh, endophenotype model uh, who would respond to the stimulants. Um, and, and it took me about two hours to go through those 100 EEGs. I, I used to have 100 a day in the lab, so it wasn't that foreign to me. The next time I showed up a few months later for another lecture, he had 126 depressives, 126 match controls. That took me the whole day. I mean, over 200 and something uh, cases to, to analyze. And um, 
in, in the depressive work, that, that's when um, that, that's when they pulled up uh, genetic testing uh, on a hundred of the uh, depressives that they could find. So, and that was full blood draw. Um, now, we've stayed busy with the endophenotype model uh, with little validations here and there across the years. And luckily it worked out. It was a retrospective paper. There were people who read it and you know it's published, so it must be real. Well, it's retrospective. Uh, you can't drive your car looking out the rear of your mirror. Uh, if you do, you're going to run off a cliff somewhere probably. So I was really um, a little afraid when we published it that people would just run with it. And some people did. Luckily, it turned out well. I mean, it, it could have just as easily a retrospective paper. You know, I, it could have been just a not looking and thinking you saw something, you know. So um, I, I'm really quite uh, happy that I didn't have a whole bunch of lemmings going off a cliff. Dr. Lord, you had a, you had a question? Yeah, maybe just kind of comment. Um, and we, I ask this of everybody who comes in and talks with us. We've, we've had quite a variety of folks. And I know you're going to hold back on your answer, Jay, but uh, I'll ask you anyway. <laughs> So, you know, what you just said there, you know, about the phenotypes and predicting uh, medication efficacy, I mean, that's a pretty phenomenal observation. And um, so my question is, you know, we're, we're neuropsychologists and neurofeedback uh, practitioners here, and uh, we have other clinicians who listen, we have other, um, you know, people who are interested in the field, and we also have patients and parents of children who come to see us, et cetera. So, you know, as I hear, you know, that bit of research that you just referenced, why isn't this information more mainstreamed? Um, why isn't neurofeedback more, you know, I'm in Chicago, um, Skip there is in Alaska, and he also uh, is part-time in Florida. So, you know, we're, we're kind of span, span the map here a little bit. What do you think is keeping... Uh, this kind of information from the masses, why don't we know more and why, why aren't people using it? If you roll the clock back to the 1970s and you were standing around the early meetings, there were groups of people that were researchers from universities like Sturman. Um, there were military people like um, uh, Rich Sherman. Uh, the military was all over that stuff as well, CIA and, and military intelligence. Uh, and there were also hippies. And uh, I have to apologize. I was the long-haired hippie in the, in the meetings. And the field got a reputation as just a bunch of hippies. And that we were there. There's no question about it. But we also were, were putting out some pretty interesting work. Um, my first laboratory in 1972 was the first state hospital laboratory in the world. Uh, I ran that for three years before I moved to California to manufacture equipment um, and uh, realized fairly quickly that selling equipment into a niche market is a good way to go broke. So um, I ended up getting a job in an EEG lab, uh, had to cut my hair at that point. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's on about but, that. But, you know, uh, the, the reputation of the field as a bunch of hippies did happen, but there was a bad piece of research that ended government funding. Pashkowitz and Orn uh, looked at alpha training. And if you, you know, think back to early 70s, it was alpha training or SMR. Those were the two things you could do. Um, and they did alpha training. They tried to correlate it with emotion. Now, they trained alpha at the back of the head in the visual area. Not exactly an emotion-rich territory, really. And they trained it with an ineffective training technique. They trained it on and off and on and off and on and off. And to get alpha going, you pretty much have to let it roll for a while. Um, uh, uh, Jim Hart found uh, extended sessions to be extremely useful to get into the alpha state deeply. So they showed no learning curve. And then they concluded that alpha training didn't have anything to do with emotion. And the whole field basically lost government funding. About the time I built a pocket-sized brainwave analyzer, which we couldn't sell any of them. I mean, uh, the, uh, so I, that, that's why I went into into the EEG lab because, uh, you know, selling equipment was a waste of time. Anyway, um, the, the field in the U.S. kind of ground to a halt almost. Sturman had Lubar in his lab. Uh, there were a few people that kind of spun off of uh, uh, Kamiya or Lubar's stuff, but it was very rudimentary, not well established in academia, luckily sputtered along uh, through the 
late 70s, early 80s to the late 80s and started to pick up effective outcomes clinically drove the field's um, funding, basically no government funding, just out-of-pocket funding. If you look at it now, uh, it's actually internationally doing extremely well. In the United States, if you ask physicians who aren't familiar with it, they'll still give you, oh, it's a bunch of hippies. And again, I have to apologize for that. But, you know, internationally, major academic institutions do neurofeedback uh, research and studies. Uh, Salzburg, Austria, Clemish's lab, the, the consciousness and sleep lab, ha- have done validation studies on SMR and insomnia. Um, uh, Graz, Austria, Gert Furcheller's lab uh, has, has replicated that. You go to South Korea, um, the, the government there funded a 10-year project to come up with a normative database, not just of EEG and ERPs, but also of genetics and diet and everything. The international field, if you're standing in the United States, you don't see the active development of the field internationally. But you can go to international universities and be a respected researcher doing neurofeedback research. Till very recently, you could kill your career by asking to do a neurofeedback research project. Escaping the stereotypical, it's a bunch of hippies thing uh, slowly because of international success. Um, Is there anything we can do to... uh... I mean, I guess that's, you know, our point here, why we have the podcast is to get it more people friendly. Um, anything that you would suggest, people, you know, we could do as a field to. <clears throat> well, it it, international? It, it, it's entering academic teaching at this point. Um, uh, but let's say today uh, all the academics started to teach neurofeedback at a high level and students could come out of the university with that knowledge. Well, how long is it going to take to penetrate practice? Well, you come out as a junior partner somewhere. Uh, you can't do anything unless it's in the protocol that's developed in the practice. And you can't bring in anything new until you're established. So it'd be five to 10 years before it would ac- actually hit the streets in a, in a major way. Um, uh, I've, I've been in the field almost 50 years now. And um, you, you think about it, I, uh, I've had this nasty headwind the entire time, uh, but I don't mind. I mean, I, uh, I, I'm bullheaded enough. Uh, I, I grew up in Fargo. <laughs> if you want yeah. something done, you just do it yourself. You know, there's nobody else to do it. I, I've been perseverative in this area for a long, long time. Uh, but, you know, uh, I find really solid neuroscience here. Uh, I've got really um, high level friends that are neurosurgeons and neurologists and epileptologists. And um, we, we don't have any difficulty talking about neurofeedback and brain function and um, neuroanatomy and neurophysiology stuff. I mean, I, I, I think it's extremely well accepted at a scientific level at high, at high levels at this point. Um, it's going to take time to penetrate down to you know, earth uh, from uh, uh, high-level academics uh, uh, down to, you know, the, not everybody teaching at a university is at the high level of neurofeedback. So it's, it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Sorry, to, yeah. sorry to bust in, Skip. I know you're, you're coming up. That's okay. Hey, what about, what about insurance? When is insurance going to start paying its way? <laughs> Uh, insurance's business is to deny coverage. <laughs> uh, until we get away from the insurance market, uh, they'll they'll always be uh, an anchor that's dragging behind the boat. You know, um, uh, 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 I, I'm uh, self-insured still. Uh, imagine a brain tumor. Who's going to insure you after you've had a brain tumor? You know, uh, and and my medications are extremely expensive, but you know, that none of them are on the formulary for Medicare. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm basically, uh, I, I haven't even opted in on Medicare. Uh, I have a POLST EMT DNR on myself, a physician order for life-sustaining technology, emergency medical tech, do not resuscitate. Um, you know, the, the, the medic alert here, yeah. uh, they see that, they go to your wallet and they see a big red, page telling him to leave you the hell alone. Um, so I, 
I, I'm fine with uh, uh, the outcome, no matter what way it goes, uh, whenever it happens. And I have near-death experiences commonly uh, for the last 28 years. Uh, I have a near-death experience rate. And the, the Grim Reaper and I are old friends. I see him, I wave over here, you know. <laughs> so I'm not in, a, in the insurance put, market. And I don't right. think that there are our friends. And uh, I don't think that their intention is to cover anything new. Uh, they'll fight uh, uh, tooth and nail the entire way. Um, in Washington state, uh, the, the parents of autistics sued for parity, uh, uh, the equivalent treatment in, in medicine, and uh, they won. But, uh, you know, you think you win, it's a battle, the war of insurance is still ongoing. So the insurance companies basically said, okay, if we have to spend $500,000 a year on treatment for autistic kids, you have to get your kid diagnosed at a center of excellence. Your family doctor can't be the one to say you're autistic. And you know, I can understand to a certain extent why they were a little concerned because there are a lot of genetic disorders that are kind of lumped in with autism, probably a slightly different entity. Uh, but autism is also a cluster of different entities. Um, it, it's not a single unitary thing. It's a DSM cluster. Yeah. And the DSM itself is a cluster or something, you know. So I'm happy to see uh, people break down these categories uh, 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 into smaller subsets. Um, but I don't, I don't expect insurance to be uh, jumping to the front and, and saying, oh, please, here, take take our money, um, they'll resist that as long as they can. And Jay, this is a kind of a big area that I'm going to ask you about, but maybe if you can just briefly address the, the latter point. But I know um, I've seen some things that you've done on, on YouTube, you know, different uh, talks that you've had on Gamma, and you just mentioned NDEs. And so I know Gamma at, at levels is correlated with consciousness and, and all kinds of interesting things. Uh, certainly, if, if, if you want, um, you know, lay, lay the groundwork for that. But my question more is, recently, it seems like MIT, for one, is looking at gamma treatments for things like Alzheimer's. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering how that connection works. And I know that's kind of a sure. giant blanket of a question. <laughs> well, consciousness is, uh, um, is an interesting topic. And we can predict conscious, unconscious based on the EEG really reliably. In fact, there's an FDA registered device called the bispectral index, the BIS index that they use for same day surgeries. And what they're looking at, their secret formula inside their little box is they're correlating 0.38 Hertz, which is um, infralow frequency generated by glia and 38 Hertz gamma generated by neural networks. When glia and neural networks interact, you're conscious. Consciousness is an interaction between glia and neural networks. If you don't have glia interacting with neural networks, you are not conscious. Uh, Anything that alters consciousness alters either gamma or infralow frequency or both. So psilocybin, um, ayahuasca, salvia divinorum, all of these things that alter consciousness, you can actually predict when you look at the EEG, whether the consciousness is altered or not at that point. Uh, that, that simple relationship ends up being foundational. It's unfortunate that uh, there, there aren't a lot more people that understand how the brain works and how consciousness works, but uh, neurophysiological solid underpinning for consciousness and altered consciousness. Uh, I'm working right now um, on, a, on a big DMT project, um, Royal College of Medicine, uh, Entheon, and Divergence um, uh, uh, Group, which is uh, two Canadian companies in the Royal College of Medicine, and uh, trying to predict um, by looking ahead of time uh, who, who's ready for a trip and who's not, um, and things like that. So we're, we're just getting into the EG data. I'm just starting to flip through the, the records. And, uh, you know, it's important what phenotype you have as to what response you're going to have to a particular medication or a particular neurofeedback protocol. 
um, or other interventions. So it's, it's your base state, what, you know, who are you now? And that can change uh, what, what you respond to. I, I'm happy to see uh, consciousness researchers uh, at this point. Um, I was sorry to see uh, Walter Freeman finally pass. Um, uh, he, he was a sweetie and he really knew deeply, uh, uh, pretty much the, the lead uh, scientist for nonlinear analysis of brain activity and um, uh, o- old friend. Uh, I've got a lot of old friends that are past, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it goes. So with the gamma, how is that being used in, uh, in, in relation to the Alzheimer's? Is it getting up well, glia, microglia functioning? There, there are people that use uh, via light gamma frequency content, and that's essentially stimulating the brain with, with uh, 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 light. And uh, the frequency that they're stimulating is in the gamma range. Now, there's, there's some interesting reports on improved cognitive function. Uh, or sustained cognitive function, um, uh, but there's st- this is still very early. Um, I, I think we've got a long way a long way to go before uh, that that's a, an accepted treatment. One of the things that they've noticed is that though people can maintain their cognitive function while they're receiving stimulation, when they stop, there's a precipitous decline. Well. <laughs> having a therapy associated with a precipitous decline is not a good matchup either. And um, th- th- they have to f- start to figure out what's going on with that too. Photobiomodulation is uh, an interesting area. Uh, the, the Koreans have put out a, a helmet that has uh, dry sensor electrodes in it. And the helmet uh, expands and contracts to the size of the head and the electrodes move proportionately. So they maintain a 1020 system proper location uh, They have a photobiomodulation in the center of each of the electrodes. So um, uh, the things are moving along on uh, the ability to do uh, photobiomodulation based on the EEG. That helmet, by the way, hooks up with a cell phone, which goes to the internet and they've got a cloud server AI uh, that can end up uh, essentially predicting where to stimulate. Uh, it's an interesting group. Uh, they have a, a discriminant, an AI-based discriminant that tells you when you first present with mild cognitive impairment complaints, uh, doc, my memory's not quite right. Uh, do I have Alzheimer's? Uh, they've got a better than 90% accuracy uh, identifying whether you're normal aging with some cognitive changes or whether you're likely Alzheimer's. They also have the ability to differentiate. Uh, They're they're just implementing this one, uh, Alzheimer's from other forms of dementia like Parkinsonism and uh, Lewy body. I kind of want to get into your background with the, uh, the Biofeedback Society of California. You were president of it twice. Yeah. Can you just go a little bit into your background there and how does that contrast with the BCIA for, sure. for the newbies out there? Yeah, Sure. A BCIA is a certifying body. Uh, there are membership organizations. BCIA, you can't be a member of BCIA. You, you don't want to have a membership organization handing out certificates. It's like, are you a member? Okay, we'll give you a certificate. You know? So um, they're, they're a certifying body. They have testing and uh, if you qualify and you pass the tests and you keep up your CEs, uh, you, you can have a certificate that you're qualified, basically. It's a, it's a base level qualification. It's not a, it, it, the, the test doesn't, it's not an impossible test, but it's a good base level to, to show that you've done your due diligence of didactic learning and coursework and hands-on equipment and so forth. So uh, BCAA is a great certifying body. I support them fully. Membership organizations include ISNR. Um, and I was president there. Um, uh, AAPB, I was treasurer at AAPB for a few years. Um, and it also includes state and local uh, regional organizations, Northeast Regional, uh, Mid-Atlantic, uh, Florida has one, Texas has one, uh, the Upper Midwest has one. Uh, California went from California Biofeedback Society to the Western uh, uh, Society. Little societies are really hard to maintain. Uh, you know, it, it's got to have somebody running it and there's no money to run it, you know. So 
they're they're notoriously on the edge of failing on an ongoing basis. I've seen them almost failing for over 40 years. So they sputter along and somebody has to step up and, and grab the reins and you know run it for a while. And <laughs> my last time I was elected president, uh, I have diabetes insipidus because of no pituitary. So I, I had to get out and pee. So I left the room. I came back. They elected me president and adjourned the meeting. <laughs> so uh, you, you don't, don't want don't to turn your back on those kind of groups, you know. All the societies uh, end up kind of moving along. Uh, they, they have a parent umbrella underneath APB or ISNR assisting, um, but the, the local regional groups are borderline of organizations. Now, they, they put on really good meetings. The California Society had national quality meetings, but no budget. <laughs> so it, it was always, our, uh, did we make enough money at the meeting to... Uh, be able to put down a down payment on a hotel for next year, you know? So um, it, it was always marginal. Uh, you know, I, I always auction off my beard um, and I, I auctioned my, off my beard to the California society for $2,000 at one point um, uh, as a fundraiser uh, over the years, I've raised $17,000 getting shaved. So uh, you know, the, the, what, what kind of group is this anyway, you know? We had a professor from UCLA at one of the meetings and, and uh, I, I, they did a shave at that meeting. And he said, you know, I'll never forget this meeting. I've never been to a scientific meeting where they shaved somebody before, you know, uh, I've done it in Australia for $5,000 for their student fund. It was 4,000 Australia, 5,000 us. Um, as I say, total of 17 over the years. Um, but that, that's how borderline they are. I mean, if somebody asked to offer their beard to get shaved to fund something, you know, the things are borderline, you know. Uh, so, so, Jay, who's, I have who's to say it's low, it's low overhead. <laughs> who's got dibs on, uh, on your locks oh. now? You know, uh, uh, it's got to be a face-to-face meeting. Nobody will pay to have it cut at a, you know, somebody else <laughs> cut it off. And You just, you just uh, put it in an envelope and send it to us. That's... <laughs> you know, the Australian shave, I thought that was it. But the next year, they had taken it and glued it on a wig head. You know, the wigs that they measure electrodes on. They glued it onto a wig head. Imagine this ratty on a wig head, you know. And they sold that <laughs> for 500 bucks, you know. <laughs> so I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, I, if I saw that... I'd, I'd go for the fumigator, you know, <laughs> it, it, it was looking pretty ratty on the wig head. So Jay, how did you first get exposed to neurofeedback? Just real quick. I should have asked it at the beginning and you know, you've, you've uh, got um, this long history. I'm a, I'm a spoiled kid of a well-to-do family. And I went to the university of North Dakota, uh, uh, pre-med program, uh, yeah, with, uh, advanced placement because of testing. They thought I was smart or something, you know, eh, tests, you know, yeah, you can't believe a damn thing you see in a test. Uh, three years uh, pre-med, I was accepted in med school, but, you know, in 1969, I didn't really think I wanted to be a doctor. So I told my dad, I'm not going to go to medical school. And he said, oh, go to Europe, sow your wild oats whatever that means, you know, uh, and uh, you'll come back with your head screwed on straight and you'll, you go to med school. So I said, well, let me get this straight. You're going to give me a credit card and I'm going to go to Europe for about a year, play around and, and then I'll come back. Is that what you're proposing? Hey, <laughs> have me the credit card. I'll be gone in a flash. You know? So I, I goofed around in Europe for a long period of time. I saw the U S land on the moon from a small dance bar in the middle of a small town in Europe, in Germany. It, it was a fabulous year. Uh, I met some great friends in Europe, came back and, and still didn't want to be a doctor. I switched schools to North Dakota state university uh, from grand forks, UND to NDSU and Fargo. Uh, um, I was interested in psychology and philosophy, the psychology, uh, you know, with a medical school, sort of a background. Um, I thought physiological psych looked, pretty interesting. And that was in the early days, just when 
biofeedback and neurofeedback. Well, neurofeedback wasn't a term then. It was EEG biofeedback still then. All that was kind of a brand new applied psychophysiology thing. And uh, psychophysiology, applied psychophysiology was interesting to me. Uh, my professor um, uh, uh, told people overly crowded classroom uh, as we were about to start a new semester, um, you know, look to your left, look to your right. Uh, uh, tomorrow they won't be here. The first two weeks we're going to learn brain anatomy. I'll tell you two spots in the outside of a head, make an imaginary line, describe the structures and functions on the way through. And sure enough, there were only four of us after, you know, about 40 people in the first overly crowded, only four of us were left. Uh, my lab partner at the state hospital, he and I wrote a grant together, uh, were in that class. Uh, physiological psych made great sense given the uh, strong science background. And talking psychology, yeah, I wasn't that impressed with it, you know, uh, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, yeah, feedback, all that made really great sense. We wrote a grant. I, I had not graduated. We, we wrote a grant. I had a lot of credits uh, because I was just playing in school, taking any course I wanted to. We wrote a grant and it was funded, probably more because of my family, a family name back in North Dakota, Gunkelman's uh, uh, as good as gold, you know, uh, in California, uh, they get guh and it, it locks up about there. <laughs> the, the, the last part of the name doesn't quite make it out sometimes. So uh, they, they funded the lab and um, we, we ran that lab for three years um, and it was a fabulous background, basically. Uh, imagine a kid with all of the toys that you wanted with no IRB. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, what do you want to do? Oh, I don't know. But <laughs> we actually did uh, sensory deprivation tank work with underwater speakers. So it was no longer sensory deprivation, but you could pump in pink noise on the speakers and then as the person slipped from alpha into theta dominant state, the pink noise fades out in a tape loop with their voice on it with a new message for them fades in. This is brainwashing. We brainwashed people, no IRB, you know, and it was transactional analysis, which is a brand new kind of talking psychology at the time. You know, you, you have a, I'm okay, you're okay. And if you're not okay, maybe there's some script that you've got that needs to be reprogrammed, meta programming and all that kind of crap. Well, we reprogrammed people uh, five hours in the tank and people had a brand new message in their head. When we were developing the, the technology and everything to do that, um, I actually had a tank experience with my lab partner's voice on the tank. It, uh, on the tape, I had his voice in my head for a couple of weeks. So it's really powerful. Um, and there's no way to cognitively stop the programming because if you alert and orient at all, it's gone. It's pink noise again. As soon as you fade out, it pumps in. As soon as you alert or orient, it goes away. So you, you can't consciously resist it. And, um, and a you know, quite effective. We didn't tell anybody about our outcomes. This was 1974, 75. Nixon was still president back in 74. So uh, in fact, uh, uh, the, the lab was uh, covered on the front page of the local paper, big pictures on the front page. Uh, Nixon was below the fold <laughs> uh, uh, on, on his way out, you know. Jay, there, real quick, um, and, and again, it's kind of yes or no question uh, answer, but did you ever do any work with the Monroe Institute, either with NDEs or consciousness or any of that over the years? Uh, not anything direct with them. Uh, however, I'm quite familiar with their work. The Society for Scientific Exploration was hosted um, in Virginia at their, um, at their campus and they had a tour of their institute. My talk there was on consciousness. Um, okay. So uh, the, the neurophysiological basis of consciousness and and um, uh, it went over very well. Yeah, uh, I would keep that up. Uh, uh, the uh, near-death experience, healers, all that kind of stuff. I've I've worked in that area as well. At the meeting, SSA SSE meeting, uh, I had a, a healer approach me, another person who wanted to study the healer, and they asked me if I was interested in in um, uh, studying the EEG of a healer. And I said, if there's evidence of him healing something, 
sure. Uh, you know, uh, if it's got a brain in it, I'd be happy to look at it. Uh, I, I just want to know that there's actually evidence of him having healed something. So, and he had been studied at Pear Institute. You know, he, he was valid. Uh, Bill Bankston. Uh, so uh, a fellow in Minnesota uh, wanted to do the research. And I said, okay, if we're going to do it, we're going to have to do it right. I'm going to order a couple of amplifiers in from Russia uh, that have a 150 hertz high end because we don't know what frequencies might be involved in this. It could be gamma two and everybody's amp here in the US kind of stops at, you know, uh, 50, 60, 70 hertz. And, you know, you might want to look at 80 to 100 or, fa or ripples faster than 100. Um, so we ordered special amps. Uh, they set it up in our office in, in the Phoenix area. The healer in one room and the Healy down the hall in a side room. Uh, and uh, uh, we had two EG techs uh, do the hookups. I didn't do any EG hookups. I just monitored the, the experiment. And we basically identified uh, uh, the Schumann resonances as a feature that happens when healing was the, the intention of healing was happening. After, and we published that in the Journal of Scientific Exploration. It was very difficult to get it published because it's an engineering journal and they don't understand EEG very well. So it took a while to get them to understand how we got frequency resolution, you know, reporting frequency resolution without 100 and something seconds worth of data to come up with a, you know, 0 0.01 hertz kind of thing. So anyway, they, at one point I told them, I'm sorry, you guys are too stupid to publish this. I'll publish it somewhere else. And they said, oh, no, 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 They brought in an expert finally and said, no, they're right. That's how you do it. And so they published it. I was asked by a group that was going to do a healing. 10,000 people worldwide at a certain time were going to do a healing intention. And this guy is on stage at a hotel and they, they wanted to do an experiment. And they did a five-minute baseline and two five-minute periods. And one of the five-minute periods had healing in it. And they asked me to look at the data blinded. And, I, you know, other, I didn't close the other eye, but, you know, I, I didn't know anything about what, what the... Uh, uh, what period was what. And, um, and I simply looked for the Schumann resonances in a bispectral display. And, you know, one of the five minute periods was full of the resonance and one wasn't. I said, this is the period that they did the, the healing. And they said, oh my God, this is fabulous. I said, well, don't ever show anybody this data because it's 50-50. I could have flipped the coin and got the odds of picking the right one, you know? So next time you do it, have a baseline period and nine periods during which it could be done and pick two of them randomly at the time that you're doing it so that people elsewhere like me and whoever's doing the, uh, the recordings and stuff don't really know uh, what period anything happened in and we spotted it accurately then too you know so you know two out of nine eh, you know now you're starting to uh, uh, make the unbelievers start to scratch the head a little bit at least. So, but a 50, 50 chance, nobody's going to, you know, go, Oh my goodness on that. So uh, the Monroe Monroe Institute did all sorts of interesting binaural beats and um, you know, the, the, a lot of psychotech stuff that was really uh, uh, interesting. We can go ahead and wrap up. Yeah. I'm just uh, glad that he took the, that, Jay, that you took the time to, uh, you know, spend with us. Sounds like you're a busy guy even in retirement. Oh, really? So just, yeah, thank you for being accessible and uh, giving us your, your wisdom. <laughs> awesome. Uh, at least some verbal diarrhea, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're here well, for. Well, well, Jay, Mary, Mary uh, tagged you. Do you want to suggest somebody to come on the show? Uh, if you can pull them in internationally, uh, yeah. Santiago Brand. Uh, just okay. moved over to Singapore. Uh, he's uh, originally from Colombia, and he's extremely well experienced in EGQEG, and he's um, a real interesting character. I, I would okay. suggest he's he kind of flies under the general radar. He's like myself. He's not. Uh, he, he's a, a tech, uh, as he says. He's a glorified tech. Uh, yeah. But he really knows what he's doing for EEG processing, and um, uh, uh, he does a very nice job uh, uh, teaching people 
um, uh, EEG, QEG techniques and so forth. Um, uh, and he's kind of um, a, a next generation. I mean, a, uh, I, I'm kind of the grandfather generation of the field yeah, yeah. at this point, uh, but, but he's a young uh, up and coming uh, EEG person. Uh, I, I point to him because he also uh, studies the raw waveform. And as, as much as people have high level quantitative processing, uh, the raw waveform is where it comes from. And you lose a lot when you go to an analytic technique from the raw. And uh, he's, uh, he's uh, stayed with the very difficult task of looking over the shoulder for thousands and thousands and thousands of studies until you start to recognize the patterns. And uh, it's all too common to see somebody come into the field, look at the wiggly lines that they don't fully understand, uh, hit an automatic de-artifacting and come up with a set of maps that they then try to interpret. But uh, they've, they've thrown away an epileptiform burst. They don't realize that the patient actually has an unstable brain. Uh, oops, you know, I've seen automated de-artifacting techniques throw away meaningful clinical patterns. So um, uh, Santiago is one of the ones who's stuck around long enough to actually get good at seeing the raw waveforms. And um, uh, I suggest that he's an interesting character. And again, his, you know, he, he's a young generation coming in um, as opposed to an old generation on his way out. Is he a younger guy? Because I see somebody on uh, LinkedIn and he looks like a pretty young dude. Santiago Brown is a young guy. Yes. Okay. And do you um, do any training University of South Florida? You know that by any chance? Uh, I don't know whether he was at University of South Florida. Um, if you would like an introduction, I can send you his email address or something. But uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, anyway, he's or, or if he's listening, he's he's really quite sharp and and um, uh, he teaches Mexico and South America and Brazil and you know he. Uh, uh, he, he enters markets that, you know, I was educated in Fargo and Grand Forks, North Dakota. So I, I barely speak English and um, uh, he, he's multilingual and he penetrates markets I can't touch. Um, so uh, uh, it, it, it's a, he's an interesting person to, to, to watch disseminate the, uh, the, the knowledge into markets that are uh, kind of hungry for the knowledge and, and really not able to access it by traveling uh, to the U.S. and internationally. Other than him, I would suggest Martijn Arns. And Martijn Arns is uh, not the incoming generation. He's at the peak at this point. Yeah, Martijn is a PhD. Uh, he's uh, into TMS and neurofeedback and uh, 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 other neuromodulatory techniques. Uh, he turns out research. Um, his PhD dissertation is five in one. You know, I, I always tell students, no, 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 no. Smaller projects, smaller. You've got to do something that you can actually finish and leave some neuroscience for the students behind you. You know, don't, don't solve everything in one study here. So uh, his, his dissertation was, uh, as I say, about five in one, uh, all published. Um, and he turns out research and meta-analyses left and right. Uh, A-R-N-S, Arns, and Martijn, M-A-R-T-I-J-N. Um, Martijn is, um, uh, again, probably one of the, the more well-published uh, neuroscience uh, folks in the world at this point. And um, he's tied into um, uh, an international group, Australia and Europe and U.S. They're buying practices and uh, setting up TMS and neurofeedback practices internationally. So he's, he's a big mover and shaker. Uh, he's a generation younger than I am, but he's uh, kind of up uh, upstream from Santiago, but he's at, at the, the peak of neuroscience at this point. Well, Jay, you seem like a pretty cool cat. You don't mind if we bring you on the show again sometime, do you? <laughs> if you have that bad a judgment, feel free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just ask my sister. All right, guys, we're, we're going to start wrapping up here. 
I want to thank uh, J.G. or Jay Gunkelman, CEO of Brain Science International. Is that right, uh, Jay? Uh, Chief Science, CSO. Chief, Chief Science Officer at Brain like Science International. Just like Spock. Just like Spock. Got it. What a, what a fantastic show. Uh, Jay, you can be found at Brain Science International or QEG Support. Which where, I know you don't want any new business, but if somebody wants to look you up, where do we send them? Uh, if you go to QGSupport.com, they'll see all sorts of details, scientific support for people doing QEG and neurofeedback. Um, and that it doesn't have any real route to get to me, uh, but uh, you get all, right. lots and lots of good data. Uh, if somebody absolutely has to get a hold of me, they'll find me online. You know, uh, 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 Brain Science International does have a website and uh, email and all of that. But um, if you contact the company, I'll guarantee you won't get to me through the company. Um, <laughs> anybody who refers a call straight through to me would be fired on the spot. So uh, no, uh, 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 remind me not to call. <laughs> <laughs> So okay. thanks, thanks for the invite. Uh, it's hey, it's been you. fun. Um, yeah, thanks, as you could tell, I, uh, uh, I'm a devout hedonist, and I always find fun in life. So, uh, <laughs> no, you're 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 awesome. You're awesome, Jay. And Dr. Laura can be found at Jansons.com. That's J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiphrin.com. Ideas for a topic. Please email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and please follow us on Twitter. Thank you again, Jay. Cue the music.